If a friend asks how you're doing and you say, I'm okay. When the truth is, I don't want my problems to burden anyone. Or you say, Hang it in there. Because if I ask for help, they'll just think I'm weak. Then this is your sign to call, text, or chat. 988 for free confidential support. Anytime. You don't have to hide how you feel. Two guys drove to work. Neither guy wore a seatbelt. One guy got a ticket. One guy didn't. The same two guys drove home. One guy wore a seatbelt. One guy didn't. One guy made it home. The guy not wearing his seatbelt didn't. Don't risk it. Click it or ticket. Paid for by NHTSA. Welcome to the Gilded Page, the periodic literary-focused episode series of The Gilded Gentleman. Back in January, I was joined by Carol Wallace, the author of To Marry an English Lord, the book that inspired much of the background of Downton Abbey. In addition to that, Carol and I had a truly insightful conversation about her new novel set in the Gilded Age, Our Kind of People. Today, my listeners are in for another treat. I will shortly be joined by Jessica Fellows, the New York Times bestselling author of the companion books to the Downton Abbey television series, in addition to The Mitford Murders, a fantastic murder mystery series based on a real-life family and a few real-life murders. And most recently, Jessica is the author of a stunning brand-new novel, The Best Friend. So, my listeners, there is no better time to go and pour a nice cup of tea, settle in, and join Jessica and me for a chat about her books, her writing life, and what we can expect from her next. Hello, I'm Carl Raymond, the host of the Gilded Gentleman History Podcast, where every two weeks we look into the corners light and dark of America's Gilded Age, France's Belle Epoque, and England's late Victorian and Edwardian eras. Occasionally, I venture right into one of my favorite places, the world of books and authors. And episodes of The Gilded Page, like this one, give you insight into not only the work of some of today's most fascinating authors, but a look into their creative process and just how they do what they do. Jessica Fellows will be so well known to my listeners, but it is my honor to introduce her today on this episode of The Gilded Page on The Gilded Gentleman. In addition to being a best-selling author, Jessica Fellows is a journalist and very busy public speaker. She was the former deputy editor of Country Life, one of my very favorite magazines, and she's been a columnist for The Mail on Sunday, and she's written for The Daily Telegraph, The Guardian, The Sunday Times, and The Lady. Jessica has spoken at events all across the UK and the US and has made numerous appearances on radio and television. I am so glad that Jessica is able to join me here in New York today in the library of the Salmagundi Club for a little chat. Jessica, I am deeply honored to welcome you to the Gilded Gentleman. 
Oh, thank you so much. It's really lovely to be here. It's such a beautiful room we're in as well. I'm sorry the listeners can't see it. but Well, it's full of books and chandeliers and fireplaces and Windsor chairs. You really get a sense of old New York here, don't you think? Absolutely. It's perfect. Perfect for all of what we're going to talk about. <laughs> and we have so much to talk about here. I want to talk with you about your various writing projects from your companion books, to the Downton Abbey series, to your new novel, The Best Friend, which has just been published and which is just remarkable. And I can't say enough about it. And I promise my listeners we're going to spend some time on that. But let's go back a little bit and just dive in here. I want to start off with the the Downton Abbey companion books, because so many readers will know your work from the five, I think it was five, right? <laughs> Wonderful companion books that you wrote to accompany the Downton Abbey television series. There was the World of Downton Abbey, the Chronicles of Downton Abbey, the <laughs> Wit and Wisdom, lots of pithy comments from, from Violet, of course. And actually, one of my favorites was A Year in the Life of Downton Abbey. Now, these are really special books because they weren't just sort of behind the scenes what happened in the filming, but these really illuminated the history and the time. Can you talk a little bit about that and what you were trying to really achieve with those books? Yeah, I mean, that was what made the book so interesting for me. So, uh, you know, what happened was that my uncle, Julian Fellows, wrote the television series, Downton Abbey, and it became this stupendous hit. But I just wa- I watched it and enjoyed it like everybody else. And the, But I had just started writing books then. I'd been deputy editor of Country Life magazine at that time, and I just got an agent. And I think I was on my second or third non-fiction book. And my agent called me up and she said, oh, I hear the producers of Downton Abbey are trying to get a book you know written but they haven't found a writer should we put your name forward so I emailed Julian and said would you mind if there was another Jay Fellows on the on the project you know sort of sneak my way in there he said yeah and I thought it's a great idea and I went in and met the publishers and they liked obviously that I had the Julian connection gave me access to the set and to the stories and so on and they liked the fact that I'd worked on Country Life magazine and so I knew my big houses I knew my kind of English estates and so on but what we really discovered um, in the course of the interview was the fact that I have have a long held fascination with that between the wars era which came from my friendship with Julian and I was not very interested in writing a behind the scenes book but what I was interested in writing was a book that set it in context so what we were really after was the real life inspirations behind the show and that was that was absolutely fantastic because that meant I could go to Julian I could talk to him about what I had recognized already were quite a lot of family stories and and inspiration behind a lot of the, the characters and plots and so on but it also gave me a real license to just spend time buried in the in in researching that era and so that was really that was really what we wanted to do so that was so all of the all of those books were about sort of presenting you know here's our fictional characters that we know and love that we kind of got familiar with you know particularly as the series went on I think there were six series in the end but it was you know but it was what Julian liked to do when he was writing the show was to not always fully explain things so he would drop something in like the Marconi scandal for example and he wouldn't necessarily hammer home exactly what that was he would leave the the viewers to go off and find out more for themselves uh, and so that was what we really liked so just the books were about providing answers to that and people just loved it they absolutely loved it and it ended up leading to kind of I did about five years of sort of lectures around America 
as well, talking about it. There were just so many, so many stories that kept coming out. Were there one or two questions that you kept getting again and again? Were there things that people just seemed so particularly fascinated with that they asked you again and again? Well, mostly people wanted to know whether Edith was going to get a happy ending. (laughs) They were so (laughs) distressed about Edith for a long time. So that that was always quite funny. But I think, yeah, I mean, the thing that struck Julian and I the most was that the character that probably came almost the most straight from life, as it were, was uh, Violet, the Dowager Countess. And she was based on Julian's great aunt, Isie Hamilton. And he thought, you know, she was such an extraordinary character, somebody that he had grown up with. She'd been born in about 1880. And I think she died in the um, 1970s. So she's a bit younger than Violet would have been. But she was essentially somebody who'd been born into the Victorian, Victorian era. And her husband was killed in the First World War and her their only child, their son, was killed in the Second World War. And so she was this extraordinary sort of doughty matriarch and she ran things in a very old-fashioned way and even when she lived in her sort of one-bedroom apartment in London, she still had a butler in 1972 or whatever. She was the one who kind of explained to Julian how that fabric of life had changed because because he was a young man in the 1960s when all sorts of ideas were changing and social fabric was getting sort of ripped apart. And so he was the one going around all the old family members and finding out what had happened. Anyway, he thought Violet would be the one that nobody would be able to relate to. And he said, the extraordinary thing was that people kept saying, oh, we've got a Violet in our family. You know, everybody had this this kind of rather formidable grandmother but I think the the main thing is that it's a, it's a it was a show about families, whether a working family or a blood family, and we've all got those dynamics going on. So there's just there's always something relatable. So it, actually, the thing that I loved was that there were so many different questions. You know, people were constantly coming to it with with their own new ideas about it, fresh enjoyment of it, and then a new generation will come. I've just rewatched it all, funny enough, with my twelve year old son. And uh, and really enjoyed it, you know, because I was watching it again from a slightly different angle, I suppose, even a few years later. And what what did a twelve year old pick up in the series? Is there something that he kept saying, "Mom, Mom, I, I didn't." Know. Yeah, he absolutely loved it. His uh, his favorite storyline uh, was the blossoming love story between Carson and Mrs. Hughes. He thought that was, and then he. He he's twelve, so he doesn't cry. And you know, I'm. I don't know if you have this. As you get older, you blub more. I find. Yeah, I do I mean, have that. Yes, <laughs> I blub all the time, very easily at everything. And at twelve, you don't cry that much. You know, it takes quite a lot. Mostly, you're trying to be very brave and stoic. But he cried. It was rather sweet. He cried when after Thomas had sort of attempted suicide in the bath and George, little George, who was named after my boy George, because uh, they were both babies at the same time, as it were, um, little boy George goes in to see Thomas and gives him an apple, trying to make him feel better. And that made my George cry. I thought that was rather touching. So actually, you couldn't have predicted that those were the things that he would most sort of be moved by as it were but I think that you know I think the thing he gets from it and I think we all get from it which makes me so pleased is he just understands that the people of history were people like us you know they are us but they're living in this different time so it's it's just exploring that context and how that makes a difference to character and expectation. My best illustration of that was when I talked to the actress who played Mrs. Patmore and the sort of grumpy cook. And I said to her, do you think Mrs. Patmore was happy? 
And she said, well, maybe she was happy, but she said, I don't think she would have ever asked herself that question. She would have asked herself, am I doing my duty? Do, do I do my job well? Am I a good Christian? Am I behaving well according to, you know, by my family? And I thought that was such a brilliant answer and actually really gave me real insight into those characters, you know, and also into the nature of historical writing, you know, trying to remain true to the context of that period and not overlay it too much with current sort of fashionable thoughts, if you like. There's no question that Downton Abbey really changed the way that we as viewers look at a historical drama series. I Mm. was recently going back looking at some of the wonderful, actually, they were Jane Austen series done in the 1970s and and the Dickensian things done by the BBC, which are wonderful. But we didn't look at those the same way that we look at Downton. So what do you think Downton did did do that. I mean, I think we yeah. do we do do historical drama very differently now, and I do love. I always wanted to do a sort of program or lecture or something on on how different productions of period dramas, you know, kind of according to when they were produced, how you can tell. You know, I love some of those nineteen seventies period dramas where they're all wearing thick black eyeliner, and <laughs> you know, <laughs> you could sort of really see. But what was what was really interesting about Downton was it not wasn't that it was doing both upstairs and downstairs at the same time. So obviously there was the famous upstairs downstairs in the nineteen seventies, but everybody somehow just got more into it. I think the thing that Julian did that was very clever was that he kept he gave all the storylines equal weight. So you never felt, oh, now we're going downstairs to Mrs. Patmore. You know, you just went you went from Lord Grantham's misery of the day to Mrs. Patmore's misery of the day and they were, you know, they both mattered equally. And so you so whoever you followed, whoever you were most interested in or felt you related to the most or you know, you, you kind of you never felt slighted by that. But the the thing that had the biggest effect on actually was um, in the National Trust houses in England, which you know, which I know you know, but some of your listeners may not. But the National Trust is a body that protects and preserves some of the biggest and most beautiful country houses in England. Also, some of the smallest, you know, some of the most notable. Whatever, there's some wonderful houses in their collection. But when we first started, when those houses first started really going, it was in the 1970s. And it was all about preserving the art and the antiques and the and the valuables of these houses and, and, and everybody sort of wandering around and looking at how those upstairs used to live. What happened after Downton was everybody kept saying, well, we want to see the servants' quarters now. We want to look at the kitchens. And of course, most of them have been ripped out long ago. A few houses still had them. And that, so I thought that was really interesting, you know, that we, we now, we have an interest in all of it. It doesn't matter who you are, or where you came from, or what the background was, or, you know, I want to know what was happening. When you were creating the, the various companion books, was there a particular season or a particular event in any of it that you were particularly anxious to illuminate for readers that they may not have understood uh, uh, before? Yes, I think maybe, probably. I mean, my favorite scene in the whole of all of the Danton series was because um, I thought it was so beautifully told and so beautifully acted was the scene when Edith goes to take her child Marigold away from the farmer's wife and because it was a real tearing of the heart you know should Marigold be with her natural mother or should she be with a woman who's loved her like one of her own for the last three years and I thought it was a brilliant scene. And then I asked Julian about it and it came from the most fascinating 
piece of, of historical sort or sort of adventure. I can't think of a good word. Not good, not adventure. It came from a good piece of history anyway. But basically what it was was that after the First World War, there had been an upsurge in illegitimate births. And people took in these babies as their own, as an adoption process, but there was in fact no legal formal process of, of adoption. What happened was that when it got to the 1920s, a lot of the mothers who had given their babies up life moved on and they got married or you know they sort of they, they somehow felt more able to take these babies on again maybe they felt that they wouldn't get judged for it in the way they might have done before the first world war there was just such a lot of change going on in the 1920s anyway a lot of them went and they took the babies back and the families that had adopted them had no legal recourse to say we don't want to let these children go and that was why the adoption law was brought in. So it was that, I loved the fact that you had such a deep and interesting layer of, of history that was going on behind this scene. It wasn't just a storyline that Julian had pulled out of nowhere. It was a piece of history that he knew about and that he had used to extremely good effect. You had said at one point in an interview several years ago that Edith was the, the character that you most identified with. Is that still true? It's Edith, yeah, well, because she was the one who was the sort of the most her own person. I mean, it's quite funny because when I first started saying that I really liked Edith, you know, in the beginning, in the first couple of series, you know, she's really not very nice and people didn't, did not get it at all. But she was the one who kind of, she refused to be caged in by her circumstances. And those are the people that Julian and I admire the most. And he said, you know, I mean, I was just... There were a lot of women like Edith. You know, they were brought up to to get married. Their only expectation in life was was a good marriage. That would be the equivalent of a good good career. They weren't prepared for anything else. Education didn't really exist beyond making them into good homemakers and conversation makers. I'm mean, talking about women of a certain class, obviously. But what happened in the First World War was when all these men were killed, was they statistically had much lower chance of getting married. And they had to go out and fend for themselves. And so Edith, was she was interesting because Mary was the sort of, was the old-fashioned one who was, she still wanted power and she decided that she had to get power in the old-fashioned way, in the way that she'd been taught by her grandmother. Uh, Sybil was the one who wanted to do it in a new way. She was the sort of politically brave one, the suffragette and so on. She was prepared to marry someone from a different class and so on. Edith, Julian, rather unkindly said at one point, just wants anything she can get. But she kind of changed that as it went on. And of course, he said she was such a good actress that he was able to respond to that with increasingly complicated storylines. And, you know, and you have to give you have to give your characters a bad time, unfortunately, because that's what makes them worth watching. <laughs> oh, we should definitely talk about that. So Jessica, after Downton, you turn to another project and really another genre and role for yourself as an author, and that is as a best-selling mystery author. So the Mitford books are set in the 1920s, which as much of the later episodes of Downton was set in that period too. So it's actually actually been said, and I did love this, that with the Downton books, you brought history to fiction, but with your mystery books, you brought 
fiction to history. So how did the Mitford series grow out of your experience with Downton and writing the Downton Companions? Well, it was very, it was very directly linked, actually. I mean, I finished the Downton books. But the Downton books kept kind of going. You know, I didn't think they would. And then they'd say, well, there's another series and, you know, we're going to do another book. So it was great. But anyway, there eventually came a point where Julia said, no, they're really a dit. You know, we're really not writing any more series. Uh, and I thought, uh, I did think I wanted to try fiction and I did think that if I was going to do it it would make sense to keep it in the 1920s because I love that period I still had so much more to say about it I'd done all this research and there was still more I wanted to write and I was sort of kicking the can down the street slightly wondering how I would sort of get around to it because I'm so used to being a writer on a deadline you know I was a journalist for a long time and then a non-fiction writer and so on anyway I was incredibly lucky I was approached by an editor called Edward, and and he came up with the concept of the Mitford murders. So he came up with this idea of taking the six Mitford sisters and using them as an anchor for a series, with each book in the series focusing on, on each sister, and that there should be a crime involved. And so he said, what do you think? Are you, are you up for that? And so I went away and thought about it, and I decided that it wouldn't work if you had to root for the Mitford sisters. I didn't, they're fascinating and compelling women, but you don't necessarily always want them to win <laughs> what they're doing. But when I came up with the idea of Louisa, this nurse, you know, the nursery maid going to work for them, and I just, I liked the fact that there's something about, because when we start the books, she's working in the nursery. And the nursery is a really interesting part of the house because it's neither upstairs nor downstairs. It's this, it's its own little world. And so it can break those rules. Because downstairs is really belongs to the servants and upstairs belongs to the master and the mistress. But in the nursery, the children of upstairs are ruled by the nanny. And the nanny used to overrule the mothers quite often. You know, she would dictate the child's routine and what they ate and what they were going to do. And for the children, that was where they spent most of the time. They were essentially brought up by servants, not by their by their parents. And so just I, I could see then how if you had took a nun, young Nancy Mitford and you put a fictional nursery maid in there, that they probably would become friends and that would be a real thing to do. And my nursery maid could be the one that we rooted for. So once I kind of got Louisa Sullivan... I went back to Ed and said, I think that's what we can do. And he said, yes. And if she could maybe have a policeman boyfriend, then we've got, you know, oh, and she access did. to crimes. <laughs> yeah. So that, so that was it. And, we, and then we found the first, the first crime, which, which was a real life unsolved murder. And then, and then we were off, you know, so. There, there are so many aspects of this that we could discuss. So for listeners who may not be familiar with the Mitfords, can you talk a little bit about who they were? Several of the sisters were pretty fascinating and a couple of them were actually pretty controversial. But can you share a little bit about a couple of them? Well, yes, absolutely. So the Mitford sisters um, were six women who, sisters, who all came of age between the wars. And each, what's interesting about them is that they were six extremely diff different women. And each one of them represents something of that era, of that, of that very heady and very intense time between the First and Second World War. So we, the Eldest was Nancy Mitford, who became a very successful novelist, Love in a Cold Climate and The Pursuit of Love being her most well-known, The Blessing being my favourite. And she was, a, she was a sort of 
she was absolutely of her class. They were an upper class family. They were not stupendously rich. They felt relative to their circumstances. They lived in a very nice, pretty house. But but she was uh, she was amazingly eagle-eyed about her class. So she was almost something of a social satirist. The next sister was Pamela, who was probably our quietest of the of the six. She never had children. She married slightly unhappily. She sort of ended up in her final years living with an, uh, a woman, uh, a woman, an Italian horsewoman, and they lived together in the in the countryside. She's the kind of the rock of the family, I think. Then you have Diana Mitford, who was extraordinarily beautiful. Then you had Jessica. Mitford, who ran off to be a communist with her cousin and to fight in the Spanish Civil War. And then finally, you had Deborah Mitford, who grew up to become the Duchess of Devonshire, running one of England's largest stately homes. What perfect material for a novelist, right? I mean, you if had you made so. it up, if you took it <laughs> yeah. as a fictional idea, people would be like, no, that's too weird and extraordinary. It couldn't possibly work. But it was all true. I'm fascinated that you actually chose real-life murders, I believe at least twice, the the, the Florence yeah. Nightingale Shore murder, which was a real-life mm-hmm. murder of Florence Nightingale's goddaughter. Yeah. That was, yeah. And then you used another one later in well, another yeah, book. Yeah, and the so. second book had a real-life gang, female gang, the 40 Elephants, um, you know, Alice Diamond, which was a real name of a female gangster leader and her, her gang, the 40 Elephants. So, you know, we t- I tried as much as possible to do real-life murders. The thing is, you have to be slightly careful because otherwise you start shoehorning things a bit too much, you know, in order to make them fit. Also, I think probably as the series went on as a writer, I got more confident about just being able to make stuff up. I mean, it was quite funny going from, like, as, as you point out, you know, with Downton, I was looking at this fictional series and then researching the real life inspiration behind it. And that's absolutely my comfort zone, having come from a journalistic background. You know, I like looking stuff up. Then I took these real life people and was trying to put them into fictional circumstances. And it took me a while to get comfortable with that. And I can remember in the first book, I had a soldier character and I was, and I thought to myself at one point, oh, so annoying that I can't just, you know, look up what rank he was in the army. And then I thought, Oh no! I can I can just make up. He can be he can be whatever I, whatever rank in the army I want him to be. But it just it took me a while to get onto that. But it is it's a kind of when you use real life things in fiction, it's a bit of a cheat in a way because it's a it's a it's a fast route to authenticity. And it you know there's nothing I'm just certainly nothing more that I love than seeing at the end you know based on a true story. So like oh really you know it really happened. But the truth is most of it happens and even. I try as much as possible to demonstrate in my historical notes at the end of the books, you know, that some elements were, were based on something that sort of it always happened. Truth is always stranger than fiction. I'm so fascinated that you chose the mystery genre. You had said also several years ago in an interview that you at one point in your life had wanted to be a barrister. So did any of it <laughs> come from that? How did you land in the mystery genre? Yeah, I think so. I think I think I think I was fascinated by that those kind of twists and turns of the human psyche I think that's what I'm really interested in I did um I did criminology in my first year of university which was because I did this four-year degree at Edinburgh and you were allowed to choose a third subject in your first year that was almost just for the fun of it and I actually wish I can remember more from my criminology degree year than I can from four years of philosophy so it served you well yeah it served (laughs) me well so yeah, no, it definitely came from definitely came from all that. I think many people sort of fantasize about, oh, I would like to be a mystery writer. I would love to write mystery novels, but I 
cannot believe it's as easy as that. In fact, it's probably harder than it seems. What do you think are the, or what did you find were the challenges of, of being a mystery writer? Yes, or what did you love about it? Definitely, definitely. I mean, I've, I was incredibly lucky because I was very guided by Edward, my publisher in the, in the UK, and by Catherine Richards, my editor in the US. And they were both incredibly experienced in editing crimes. So they were really good at saying, you need a red herring here, you need to go down this path here, or this, you know, the reveal needs to be done in a slightly different way. And so, but the thing I said to myself at the very beginning when I wrote the first book, and I did, I think I did 40,000 words and sent them into Ed. And I thought, if he comes back and says, well, the crime plot is brilliant, but you know, the characters just don't, are not coming off the page, then I'm doomed. If he comes back and says, the characters, oh, I'm really there with them, but the crime doesn't really work, then I'm okay, because that's just a puzzle that needs solving. So luckily it was, it was the latter that he came back, you know, from the get-go, I, I sort of felt I knew how to bring the characters to life and I really enjoyed doing that and I liked doing dialogue and so on. But the, the, the setting of a puzzle is much is much harder. And also the, the, the real challenge for it, I think, is, is it depends on how much planning you like doing. You know, so some crime writers plan everything, some do nothing at all. But I like to do, I have a slightly sort of bridging thing so I kind of have everybody I know where everybody starts I know where everybody finishes I know roughly what needs to happen to them in the middle but I don't exactly know how I'm going to get them from A to B to C and that's the fun that's the fun of writing it you know as you're going you know you do it and then Peter came into the room Peter came into the room brilliant what's Peter going to do now you know that you kind of that's what gets you going through the day if you really plan it too much you risk boring yourself with the story, like you've told yourself the story already. And it's why writers must never discuss plots before they've written a book. Because you've, you've said it all. You've told it all out loud. You've told the story. You know, you, ne- you need to keep it fresh. Writers often say that they have to let the characters live and breathe and become the characters. You agree with that? Yes. And then, I mean, the thing is, what they, they have to dictate what happens. So that's the other thing with planning things is that sort of the the sort of ironic thing in a way about writing fiction is that you need to be as truthful as you possibly can be so the, the character needs to always be true to what they would do and sometimes you've arranged for them to do something in a plot and you get to it and you realize that character just wouldn't do it and you mustn't make them do it if you do it just it rings hollow and it annoys the reader I mean I'm really annoyed if I watch something or read something and I think but they wouldn't have had that affair they just wouldn't you know they just wouldn't do it and then all of it turns to ashes and so that's I think what characters what writers mean when they say the you know it's just so annoying the characters just won't do what I want them to do you know and just because you've created that person but you you must let them behave naturally now in writing this particular series in the mystery genre, you you had a sort of defined set of characters, six sisters, six novels, and you tied it all up. Would you go back to the mystery genre? Would you write another mystery? Uh, I don't know. I mean, we've been talking about it because I'm on a sort of slightly mini writing sabbatical at the moment while, I, while I'm thinking about what it is that I want to do next. I'd still really like... I like taking things from history and, and illuminating them. You know, I like... I like revisiting things. I like the fact that I think we can learn from it. I like the parallels that there are to be drawn. 
I think sometimes, you know, there's a danger of patronising the people of the past, you know, making them a little bit two-dimensional where we think, well, you know, because somebody was born in that time, in that era, in that class, they think they thought this way, you know, and they didn't. There's so many radical characters in the in the past that did things differently, thought differently, were as messy and as complicated as we are in our 21st century. So I enjoy doing that. So if I went back to crime, I think probably it would be one with a real life, with a real life connection to it. But there's so many things I want to write, so I don't know. <laughs> to finish up our conversation on the mystery novels, before we get into your brand new novel, I do want to ask you, you said that, well, of course, the, the Mitfords lived during the, the, that golden age, that 20s and 30s, that period that you love so much, which also many people think was really the golden age of mystery writing. You had mm, Agatha Christie, mm. you had Dorothy Sayers, you had Allingham, you had others. Was there a mystery writer that really inspired you or that you particularly love from that period? Well, I mean, the embarrassing thing is that I hadn't really read any Agatha Christie before I started reading, uh, writing these. And then, you know, I've got these sort of comments going, you know, they were very sort of Agatha Christie-like. And I thought, oh, really? You know, and then I've read them some subsequently, and she is brilliant. You know, I, I've always been such a kind of wide-ranging reader, and there have been crime books that I've really enjoyed. I think I mostly took my inspiration, though, from a couple of contemporary authors writing about the past. That was what I found gave me hope because I'd read a lot of 1920s and 30s authors. So Evelyn Moore, Scott Fitzgerald, Dorothy Parker, Graham Greene, Somerset Maugham, you know, I love them. I'm just rereading The Moon and Sixpence at the moment by Somerset Maugham. It's my real sort of comfort book. What I wasn't sure about was whether somebody, whether a modern person could evoke that period really well or not. And then we read Kazuo Ishiguro's Remains of the Day, um, which for me is probably the best written book of all time. I just think it's just extraordinary. He's not even writing in his first language. And Kate Atkinson's Life After Life, where I think she's an example of a modern writer who clearly does extraordinary research, but wears it very lightly. And I'm very excited to read. She's got a new book out, which is clearly based on a nightclub hostess that I based a character on in, in The Mitford Affair, which is the second book in the series. So if anyone out there fancies reading them both and seeing see how they both stack up against each other. But those are the ones that kind of really made me feel like I, I could give it a go. Well, I think you achieved everything in this series. Wonderful characters, a fascinating historical basis, lots of amazing historical details on how life was lived, and some pretty darn good crimes. And you even offer a solution to the Florence Nightingale Shore <laughs> murder, which, of course, to this day is unsolved. Yes, thank you. So listeners, Jessica and I are going to take just a brief break and when we are back, we are going to dive into Jessica's brand new novel, The Best Friend, just published, which is an extraordinary piece of fiction and very different from anything that we've discussed so far. We'll be right back. This is a big year. The Ohio Lottery's golden anniversary. 50 years of excitement, of growing jackpots and crossed fingers. 50 years of funding for schools, of changed lives and brightened days. 50 years of fun, and that is worth celebrating. So watch for can't-miss promotions, huge events, and new games that will make the Ohio Lottery's 50th year its biggest one yet. Learn more at funturns50.com. After the end of a good fight, you deserve an ice-cold reward. 
Medela, you put in the hours, the energy, the tough labor, because you know the bigger the fight, the better the reward. Medela, the mark of the fight. Drink responsibly. Beer imported by Crown Port, Chicago, Illinois. Capella University is rethinking higher education. With their game-changing FlexPath format, you can earn your degree on your schedule, so you can fit education seamlessly into your life. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. And we're back with this episode of The Gilded Page, the literary series as part of The Gilded Gentleman. And I am so honored today to be with author and journalist Jessica Fellows, who wrote the companion books to Downton Abbey, an extraordinary series of mystery novels called The Mitford Murders, and a brand new novel that has just been published called The Best Friend. Jessica, welcome back. And I'm so excited to dive into this. The Best Friend is a novel. It's a story, on one level, you could certainly say of female friendship. It's a story of two women. They meet when they are children. And it really charts them at different points throughout their lives until they are well into their 80s when the novel ends. And this is truly a stunning novel. I have to say I was completely unprepared for the emotional impact and the journey that, Jessica, you took not only me, but all the readers uh, that read the book. So I have a number of questions, but I want to start with how did that book grow out of the mystery series, or was this its own completely different project? It was. was, Thank you so much, first of all, for saying such kind things about the book. It's always lovely to hear. it kind of grew, grew out of it. I mean, actually, funny enough, what it was when I was when I was first kicking that can down the street after the Downton books and thinking about what to do next. I'd started writing a novel about two women, and I kind of got so far with it and was sort of beginning to sort of edit it and think about what to do with it. And I got an agent off the back of it, and so on, a new agent. And then Ed came along with the Mitford murders, and I put it to one side, and I thought, you know, I'm getting. Basically, effectively, I got a one-on-one masterclass, you know, in, in writing novels with with Ed doing the Mitford murders, and and then after I, in about 2020, I was approached by an Italian publishing company, and they said they wanted to publish a novel by me, and they said, "We'll just, you know, we'll publish anything kind of thing." It's my Mitford murders series has done very well in Italy, surprisingly. And they said, have you got anything? Have you got... I said, I haven't really got time to write another... You know, I'm doing a book a year at the moment. I was doing a television script at the same time as well. And they said, well, maybe you've got something you started and, you know, you could just do that. So I thought, well, well I have got that novel, actually. So I thought, and I sort of opened up this old document and I saw there were about 20,000 words and I thought, oh, okay, well, that's... And they said they just wanted a half-length book. So I thought, okay, great. I'll, you know, I'll do that. And I just had... About, I had something like six weeks where I could do this novel and I thought I could, I could just about get it get it done then anyway I sat down <laughs> I got the book out at the beginning of the six weeks and I read what I had written before and it was terrible there was just no chance that this book that I was going to allow this book to be published so I thought well okay I've got a lot more work to do now in the next six weeks than I thought I did but at least my writing's improved over the last few years I can say that um when I I sat in the garden with my husband and I said I've got this idea what can I you know it's these two women and we just sort of stripped it back and I realized that what I really wanted to write about was just this this kind of very core idea of two 
women together and how that friendship might change. And then, I don't know, I was talking to my niece who was six at the time. She was talking to me about her best friend. And I was remembering how one of my really good friends I'd known since I was five. And then I also know my mother's best friend is a really good friend of mine. My mother died quite a few years ago, but I inherited her best friend. And so she and I talked, she's talked to me a lot about the way her friendships have changed over the years. And so I just was, thought, I just want to get this little investigation going almost into, into, into how female friendship really works. There are so many narratives around female friendship and male friendship, you know, friendship generally during the pandemic, we all, a lot of our friendships really kind of either withered or or thrived, you know, because of the circumstances. So it was just about, it was just about how I could get into that. So it was a completely, it was a completely different project. I mean, the Italian one, it came out and then the my UK and US publishers said they would actually, were really interested in buying it, but but with edits and with extensions and so on. And so that, got, that was great, actually, because it gave me a chance to really spend some proper time on it and go back on it and make it a much better book. This is really an extraordinary novel of connection, the search for intimacy, trust, temptation, betrayal, secrets, <laughs> loneliness. I made this this whole list fulfillment, but it really ultimately, I think, asks us to define friendship over our lifetimes mm. in so many of its different forms. And you actually said in a piece, there's a strange ability in us to be friends with those who betray us. What did you mean by that? I think because life is long, you know, friendships are long. And what I have certainly realized is, you know, you get to a certain age and sometimes you are friends with people just because they've been in your life for a very long time. And sometimes that can be a bit exasperating, but sometimes that can be very comforting. And so even somebody who has betrayed you, still might offer you something just because I think what I realized I think what I realized during the the lockdowns and everything was that what I didn't get from my friends at that time was was the different reflections of myself in different friends so we have our we have different friends for different reasons different times in our life different sort of purpose you know there were people we give more to you know, there are others who give more to us. But it's important that we see ourselves reflected back to us in the, in those friendships, if you like. You know, kind of, I really missed just putting my lipstick on for certain girlfriends because of the way that they respond to me when I put my lipstick on. It's a different way to the way that my husband responds and when I put lipstick on. And I need that. I need that different reflection. I have my friends that I talk very seriously with about the world and politics and then I have others that we just do silly gossip you know others who, who are also mothers or you know all of those all of those different things and so I think it was just you know sometimes there's that person who has betrayed you but usually you've probably betrayed them too in some way you know it's that constant motion that's going on that constant flux and over time, that builds up layers and layers, you know. And I just I did was witness, witnessing it in these friendships that my mother's best friend was telling me about, you know, just these people that she would get so frustrated with and then she would say, oh, I met her for coffee last week, you know. And I'd be like, what? Why? And then she said, oh, but, you know, I know she did that awful thing to me, but, you know, she can also make me laugh more than anybody else. And it's just all of these things can coexist 
And so I just was interested in that. And when I was young, and I I needed that perspective from someone who was older then, I often didn't get it from my current friendships, you know. So, so I kind of wanted that in a book. I want young women to read this book for that reason. You know, it's just, it, it's worth putting things into, into friendship. This is clearly such a deeply personal book for you and mm. deeply personal writing, certainly far more than, than really any of the other books yeah, that definitely. you've done. How much of you is in our main characters, Bella and Kate? Well, probably quite a lot. I mean, Kate is, was began out of my grandmother and Bella pretty much probably began out of me. But, it, you know, you always you always have to be really careful with, with, with it with characters in that in that way I mean there's always a bit of you in every character because the easiest well of resource that you've got is yourself um it's the fastest place you can access you know to think about how somebody might respond or answer something so there's always going to be a bit of you somewhere and there's no complete template of anybody and there's all sorts of different stories I mean there are there's definitely friends there's certain friends that I'm nervous I have been or former friends and I thought oh god might read this and they'll think they see themselves there's maybe little bits of them but nobody is a whole sort of lift onto them but yeah no there's a lot of there's a lot of stories there's a lot of incidents in there that happened either to me or to someone very close to me there's a quality as I was reading it that it felt like this was a story that just had to come out of you. <laughs> did, did you find as you were writing it that it just gathered steam and you just had to keep going to, yeah, to get I this mean, out? It did. I mean, definitely because I did also, I gave myself this license with this dialogue chapter. So I, I kind of felt because this Italian company had said that they would just publish anything, I thought, well, this is an amazing opportunity to take a risk that I perhaps might not afford to take with a much with a more commercial venture. And I had just read Bernadine Evaristo's book, Girl, Woman, Other, which I really loved. And she does this thing in her chapters where she doesn't put um, full stops except at the very end of a chapter. And it gives the paragraphs a certain poetic rhythm as you read them. And I just I just really liked it. And it, I just thought it wasn't a very radical thing to do. It was just a little bit different and it just affected the rhythm of your reading and I liked the fact that she slightly manipulated that in a way. And so I thought, well, you know, what if I, I can give myself license to do anything? You know, this my book. I can I can do it in any way that I want. You don't often think that though. There are so many people involved in a book. You've got your editor and your publisher and your agent and your first reader and, you know, and and it's quite hard sometimes to close yourself off from all that and just and read without expectation of review or what your fans want and all that kind of stuff. And I, once I thought, actually, what I'm most interested in is this idea of just completely disappearing into the friendship and just complete immersion into their friendship because that is how it feels for them. It's not about any of the other stuff. You know, there are other characters in there and it's not that I mean to diminish men at all I love men but in this book they're peripheral to their friendship they're not peripheral in their lives but they're peripheral in their friendship and so it's just about getting right into that and I thought if you could just strip away all the he said she said and you know the chair moved or the sun shone or you know whatever and you just get right into their conversation as it is for them then it gets really interesting and those pages just went 
like something was on fire. I really enjoyed writing those. I think that's why the book feels so visceral, because you bring us right into those relationships. Mm -hmm. You know, there's really nothing extraneous. I was really fascinated by the professions that you chose for your main characters, Bella and Kate. Bella Mm -hmm. is a painter, Mm -hmm. and Kate is an actress. And what really struck me about those choices, both of those professions really attempt to create or reproduce other people Mm. or make sense of other people. Was that intentional? That's a very good point, actually. That's a very good point. I I don't know if it's not in terms of pairing it in that way. I mean, my mother was an actress. I was always interested by the fact that she was quite a shy person and yet she could go on stage. Um, Kate's not her in that sense, but she is that, that kind of odd thing that a lot of actors have of being very personally, privately insecure, and yet this extraordinary confidence that they're able to project when they're on stage, and they utilise that confidence in situations where they feel vulnerable to kind of cover themselves up and to be a mask. And so I was interested in exploring that with Kate. And then with Bella, it definitely was about the fact that she was, you're absolutely right, it was about the fact that she was making sense of people, but doing it in this very quiet and private way as a painting. But I hadn't thought about the fact that I'd paired that together. So thanks for that. I like that. But this is what, no. <laughs> this is what I love, though, because this is, this is exactly what is so exciting for me about reading books, is that, you know, I have so many months tucked away with a book by myself, and then there's maybe one or two or three people who get into that. But the, the time I am the most nervous is when the book has been printed, and then it's about to kind of come out and everyone's about to to read it and because because then it becomes their you know it's out of my hands after that it becomes theirs and then you know it gets exciting and actually funny enough with the best friend you know there have been some very different responses because it's not for everybody which is fine and I have found that I really don't mind you know if it doesn't work for you that that's totally okay I, I think for the people who get it they really get it and so it's you know it's not it's just you can't always do that. I mean, there's a, there's a great, um, I'm trying to remember who said it, but it's a, there's a great sort of analogy about writing. It's like, you know, if you think about, take about uh, steak and think about all the different ways that you can cook steak. And there's only one way to make steak palatable to everybody, and that's a McDonald's hamburger. So, you know, what are you going to do? Are you going to do the very fine cooked fillet steak or are you going to do the hamburger? You know, and sometimes the hamburger is just what we need. I love a McDonald's hamburger, you know, now and then. And I love an easy, easy read, but sometimes I feel really rewarded by something that just takes a little bit more work for me that needs me to bring my agenda to that writer's page. And that was that was what I was hoping the best friend would do for, for readers. Don't you think, I mean, for a writer, you really have to be true to yourself and what the story is and what the emotions are, and then you have to let it go. And I think yeah. letting go for any creative artist is always a little bit difficult, right? <laughs> yeah, it is. Right. Yeah. Um, so the book is really a portrait of friendship do you think one can actually have a best friend in one's life and do you think that's a basic human need yeah no I do I think I think I think you have to have patience and allow that to grow no I think I'm very lucky in that I have a number of very good girlfriends for and that I can call on and and rely on but I do have I do have I do have one that I talk to very frequently you know we sort of email or message each other several times a day. And occasionally, you know, there will be a, a few days or a week where we don't speak, but most of the time. And I've really come to rely on her for 
a certain kind of candid response to things that are happening to me. And but also we're both writers, so we help each other with with our. But she read this. She was somebody I let in on this book very early, and she was inc- incredibly helpful. And, and yeah, I do think there is a best friend, but I also think it's more important to, to concentrate on making yourself the person that somebody would want to be best friends with. You know, somebody who is who is allowed to have best friends. You know, it's, it's just when you respect yourself and like yourself, you will deliver that and bring that to your friendships in space, and then you get it. And then you get it back even more, you know. So just look look after yourself first, and then all those friendships will come. I'm so curious, and I can't wait to know what's next. <laughs> oh, me too. <laughs> Can you give us any idea of what to look <clears throat> well, forward to? I'm just thinking. I mean, you know, I've written a book a year, if not more, since 2010. So I'm, I'm kind of I'm, I'm just enjoying a few months of really taking my time to think about what the next project is. I've got a script project that I'm working on and that's something I really like the idea of doing because I like the idea of a little bit of collaborative work having spent so much time sitting by myself at my desk. But uh, yeah, I've got one one or two ideas. It won't be too long before everyone knows. Well, I can't wait and I hope you will come back to the Gilded page on the Gilded Gentleman so we can talk some more. It would be my pleasure, Carl. Thank you. There are so many things I would love to keep talking with you about. So, with that, we will leave my listeners to go and buy a copy of The Best Friend today or any of uh, Jessica's other works. And I hope that you will look at them all now with some new eyes as the result of the insight that, uh, that Jessica, you've given us today. I wish we could go on and talk and talk. I know we can't, but thank you so much for joining me today on The Gilded Gentleman and sharing so much about your writing and your insight and your creative process. Thank you so much, Jessica. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's been such a pleasure. And to my listeners, I hope you have enjoyed this episode of The Gilded Page on The Gilded Gentleman. The Gilded Gentleman is produced by Bowery Boys Media, and this episode was edited and produced by Kieran Gannon. I invite listeners to become a patron of the show on patreon.com slash the Gilded Gentleman. Your support helps directly with the costs of research, writing, and the studio and production rentals to create the show. I couldn't do it without you. I look forward to seeing you in two weeks for another episode of The Gilded Gentleman. And after all, what's life without a little glint of gold? Save big money on everything. Now at Menards. Make quick work of your outdoor cleaning project with Masterforce Outdoor and Landscaping Tools. The 80-volt cordless trimmer is powerful, efficient, and hassle-free. So you spend less time working on your yard and more time enjoying the results. On sale now through May 19th. Check out our wide selection of Masterforce tools and see the rest of our deals on Menards.com. Save big money at Menards.